0: Father, we worship you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that as we discuss your nature, as we discuss uh, your triune nature, we pray that you would help us to engage with this topic and realize the, the great importance that it has for us, not simply as a, a doctrine on a page. But realizing that we are talking about you, our God, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we uh, desire to understand better. We desire to engage better with you. We desire that you would work in our hearts even in this time. And so we ask for your blessing and the work of your spirit in our lives that uh, uh, your son would be lifted up, that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody should have a sheet, and if you don't, you can grab one. Uh, we're going to spend some time today talking about the third paragraph in the second chapter of the confession, and uh, just kind of as a review of how we got here, chapter one of the confession uh, rightly talks about Scripture and the role of Scripture, the nature of Scripture, the place of Scripture, the use of Scripture, how to interpret it, etc., cetera, et cetera, because that's a foundation for everything else that we're going to understand. That makes sense, right? You've got to have a solid foundation. And the solid foundation uh, that points us to where we are going to find the uh, uh, truth about God and about ourselves and about uh, salvation, etc. The place we're going to find that information in the, uh, is, is going to be Scripture. And then we move on in chapter 2 and we begin to talk about God. Himself. Now, of course, Scripture is going to be referenced throughout the entirety of the confession. And of course, God is going to be discussed throughout the entirety of the confession. But chapter 2 is really uh, laying some, some, uh, some um, key truths like cornerstones that are going to help us think about uh, the topic of God later on and in, in our interaction with Him, etc. And so, as we looked at chapter 2, we saw that... Uh, the uh, first paragraph of that chapter discussed uh, the one true God, that we're not talking about many, we're talking about the one true God and this is what He is like, and then we moved on in paragraph two last week to talk about God's eternal relations, what He is like, uh, Him being self-determined, uh, self-sufficient, and all of those things. And uh, and and so, He has a particular place uh, in our lives, uh, or He... He uh, ought to have that place in our lives. And so uh, chapter 3 is going to move on and talk about God's internal relations. And so you can see on the top of uh, your sheet there, <clears throat> I've entitled it God's Internal Relations or on the Trinity because that's really what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, is the, the, the nature of God Himself as being triune, and uh, that's a, a very key doctrine, and I think perhaps it's one that we would assent to. We would say, yeah, um, I believe in the Trinity, and yeah, it's important. We don't understand a whole lot about it, and frankly, it's not something that we can comprehend. It's not something we can wrap our minds all the way around, but we do need to understand the boundaries. We do need to understand what are the guidelines, uh, what are the boundaries that, uh, that separate uh, Trinitarian belief from other kinds of uh, false beliefs about God Himself, other uh, heresies, etc. So we need to know where those boundaries are. And though we can't uh, get our, wrap our minds entirely around three and one and one and three, uh, yet we need to understand some basic truths. Okay, and so that's going to be our topic for today. And um, as we discuss this paragraph in the Confession. Uh, it, it feels a little odd to cover the Trinity in one lecture, in one time, as if we're going to say everything there is to say, as if we're all going to come away uh, having a perfect understanding and all of that. Um, that that's that's not going to happen. Okay, we're not going to say everything there is to say about the Trinity. We're not going going to uh, learn it all today. Um, and the reason that I'm okay with moving on from this discussion. Uh, in in doing it in just one section is because of the purpose uh, for which we are discussing the the confession in general, which is we are considering it, trying to understand the nature of the confession so that we can consider at a point down the road uh, possibly taking this on as our doctrinal statement. And so on one hand, we need to understand what it's saying in itself, as well we need to understand what it's saying and how that is consistent with all of uh, Christian teaching throughout history. There's nothing unique in this paragraph. That's the point. And so uh, that's a big part of the reason I'm willing to spend just one uh, one hour on it and move on is because this is just a statement of Trinitarian doctrine. There's nothing unique. There is nothing new. There's nothing uh, unusual, nothing unexpected. This is Christian doctrine and has been from the earliest uh, times of the development of uh, of uh, Christian doctrine in general and so um, with that apologetic being given for uh, why we're, we're uh, I feel okay covering it in one section um, I wanted to reference you probably have there on on top of your sheet there uh, from the children's Catechism or the Catechism for boys and girls okay which is which is a, a catechism that that we use here and uh, we use with our our children and and um, you'll see this is question six, question seven, and question eight. So this is not the end of all of, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of questions or something like that. This is, this is relatively basic. This is at the beginning of the catechism. And the question that's asked there, question six is, are there more gods than one? And the answer listed there is no, there is only one God. Okay? Now that's a great place to start. That's not a new place to start. There's nothing unusual about that. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? That's, that's like, I call that the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's, it's basic uh, doctrine, understanding about what God is like. And then if you turn to uh, Mark chapter 12 and 29, if I could have someone turn there, and then, uh, and once you find it, go ahead and read it out for us. So that's Old Testament, says that God is one, and you might, you might think that coming to the New Testament, you would get a slightly different message perhaps because of the emphasis on Jesus and the emphasis on uh, Jesus being God, etc., but Mark 12, 29 says, All right, so out of the mouth of Jesus himself, he's referring back to that same passage. There is only one God, right? And uh, and so um, we're seeing it uh, consistently, um, at least quoted by Jesus there in Mark chapter 12, and verse 29. And of course, um, if you'll look at the, there's several other references there, and I could have multiplied these many, many times, but I just just for the sake of brevity and, and for you to get a sampling and see uh, what I think you already know, which is that the Bible teaches there is only one God. James 2.19, um, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And so in that discussion, James is talking about there, he's talking about a true doctrine That you do well if you believe this true doctrine, which is that God is one, okay? And so the consistent teaching of Old Testament and New Testament is that there is only one God, okay? So we need to have that nailed down in our minds, okay? Which I I believe we do, but nevertheless, as we're thinking about this topic, we need to do so. There is only one God. I'm going to change that. Talk or write. Don't talk and write. Okay. So there is only one God. Okay, but question seven: In how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons, right? Basic uh, Christian teaching, and we're going to uh, we're going to look at several references there. But if there are three persons. Who are they? Father, right? Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, again, there's only one God, but He exists in three persons, and those persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so... um, Uh, We might look at, for example, at uh, Matthew 3, 16, and 17. If you could turn there. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages today, so it's uh, not quite a sore drill, but it's not far from it. (laughs) Matthew 3, 16, and 17. And here is the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So right there in those two verses, you've got Jesus himself. He's the one being baptized, right? He's there on the scene. He is there being baptized, and the heavens are open, and, and what does he see? What does our passage tell us about the Holy Spirit descending? So you've got a reference in the same paragraph to Jesus. He's here, and then the Holy Spirit, and then what else? There's a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so right there in the same circumstance in the baptism of Jesus, you've got, you've got all three persons of the Trinity represented in two verses. You've got the Son, you've got the Spirit, and you've got the Father. Okay, and so um, you've got them all right there together likewise <clears throat> at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 there at the uh, great commission all Right, Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name singular of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That baptismal formula there, that being baptized in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is uh, very interesting. It's very important for us to remember that this is part of uh, being a Christian and being baptized in the name into Christianity, entering into Christianity involves being baptized into this name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so uh, they're very closely tied together. We're talking about one God, but we're talking about three persons. One God and um, we could look at some more examples there, but go to Acts chapter 2 and verse... Thirty-three Again, Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. You have the preaching of the gospel. Peter's standing up there and and the the Spirit has come and the place has been shaken and tongues of fire and speaking in tongues and and all this. And then Peter stands up and preaches in response to their questions about what is going on. And part of this very initial message, this first uh, sermon preached on the day of Pentecost, you see in verse 33, being therefore exalted, uh, speaking of Jesus, right? In verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted, to the promise of the Holy Spirit is poured out. This that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see all the references to Father, Son, and Spirit in the very same sentence, the very same couple of verses. You've got this statement about the working of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit okay and so um, what what we're pointing out and what scripture is teaching on this topic is that there is a way to distinguish father from son okay the son is not the father there is a type of teaching that says uh, there are various types of teaching that says God sometimes appears this way and then he goes off the scene and he comes and he appears this way. Sometimes he appears as the Father. Sometimes he works as the Son, right? As, it's called modalism. And so it's a different, it's like God is putting on a different mask, right? For, for different things. And it's a, it's, that's a heresy. The scripture would teach that the Father is not the Son, just with a different mask on. Likewise, that the Father is not the Holy Spirit, right? And likewise, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. These passages that talk about uh, Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and the Father speaking from heaven, they're, they're indicating uh, distinction, ways that we can distinguish between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that uh, when we're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not intermingling those, right? We're not, uh, we're not confusing Father and Son, for example. They are different persons, okay? One God, different persons, okay? Now, like I said, in our time today, nor nor in any amount of time studying this topic, we're not going to wrap our minds entirely around the uh, uh, triune nature of God. We're, we're not going to be able to encompass infinite God into finite brain. Right? Our categories are such that uh, we cannot comprehend God, but we can get a handle. We can understand where the boundaries are. And so what we're doing is drawing some boundaries in helping us think about and understand uh, the triune nature of God. Okay? And so as we think about um, the fact that we've looked at the Father not being the Son because they're on the scene together in certain ways, and the Son not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit not the Father, as we think about that, we move on to the second notion there, which you have on your page, which is the first is that fa- the Father is God. Now, I felt silly even listing a single verse because the whole Bible would teach that, but go to, go to Galatians chapter 1. And again, I, this, you could put a thousand verses here to indicate this, but uh, so, we, so it didn't look like we were making it up or whatever. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia, etc. But you see, that statement and a thousand others would say that the Father is God. No, no shock. I, I, don't, I don't know that we need to uh, belabor that point. That is um, one of the most basic truths that there could be, okay? But as the Father is God, we'll see that Scripture is teaching us that the Son is God, okay? And so the Son is God. I've got a couple of references there. Uh, I want to turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And there is so much theology packed in these three verses that you could... um, you could spend a whole lot of time studying right here, right? John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, we could continue on that, but... But you see that in the very beginning, when there was only God, there was the Word. And the Word was with God. So there's a way you can distinguish God here as a reference to um, uh, deity and and Father. Again, there's a lot going on here. But the, the Word was with God. The Word is the Son. He was with the Father. He was in the beginning. He was with the Father and the Word was God, right? The Son is God. And that's, that's a shocking truth about Jesus to the entire uh, uh, New Testament, you know, era that, in, that met him was that he himself was God. Remember, he was uh, nearly stoned a number of times and he was, um, he was accused of all manner of things, of blasphemy and whatnot, because he would say things like, uh, before Abraham was born, I am. Which to us sounds like that's a weird statement, Jesus. And to them, they knew that meant Jesus is saying, I am God. I am Yahweh. They understood that. They picked up stones to stone him because they thought he was blaspheming. But actually what he was claiming was the truth. The Son is God. Okay. Those other two passages there, uh, there's another one that I want to go to, and that's Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. By the way, on the, the other two passages that are listed there, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and I could have listed uh, several others, if you're reading the King James, you will not pick up on it because this is a, this is a grammatical development. It, it, it was a, it's a, a development in the understanding of the grammar of the New Testament that had not been arrived at by the time of the translation of the King James Bible. And a uh, man in the 19th century was studying Greek grammar, and he began to see a fact. Now I've got to turn to it because I've been talking about it so much. Could I have someone turn to 2 Peter one, 1 please? <clears throat> I have no self-control, okay? I'm just going to talk about the things, and I end up over there talking about the things. All right, so this, this man was studying Greek grammar, and he came to realize that in a, in a particular, particular construction and I won't bore you with the construction itself, but every time it appears, these two elements are referring to the same person. That if you're just reading through it and you don't know that rule of Greek grammar, like the King James translators hadn't discovered that rule of Greek grammar yet, they just translated it verbatim like it's on the page. And it wasn't until the 19th century that this man discovered, oh, when that construction happens, every single time it happens... Two names, two nouns, are referring to one person. Can I have someone read Second Peter one one, please? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay. I don't need to belabor this point, but but the, the that's the New American Standard or is that ESV? Yeah. ESV. So, obviously, ESV is translated after the 19th century, and so they are aware of this fact that had been dug up, that was buried in the grammar the whole time and not understood uh, earlier. But what, what you have there is an equation. Jesus is God, our Savior. Christ is God, our Savior, okay? I don't need to go on about Greek grammar much more. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, all right? Uh, Paul is talking about his heart for the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, and he says in verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, that's a much simpler statement that doesn't require um, uh, a great knowledge of Greek grammar. Right? The Son is God. So, the Father is God. The Son is God, but the Father is not the Son. Remember, we're drawing boundaries. We're trying to see uh, where the edges are. Now, uh, we go on to the Spirit uh, is God. And um, Acts chapter 5, we ought to turn to Acts chapter 5 and look at that passage. This is the kind of thing that probably you could read by this and never even notice uh, what's going on in in the passage here, but of course, this is a situation of Ananias and Sapphira, and um, and so Peter here is uh, uh in verse three, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To lie to whom the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to whom God verse 3 you lied to the Holy Spirit verse 4 you lied to God same lie was a lie uh, to the Holy Spirit who is God and so we could complete um, our understanding here right? The Holy Spirit is God, okay? And so those boundaries there help me. Now, this is not a picture of the Trinity, okay? But this is just a way, uh, a, a way for me to understand and keep straight in my mind truths about God, okay? And, um, and then we'll, we'll look at one more verse. Go ahead and go to uh, uh, Psalm 139. Again, we're just talking about uh, Trinitarian doctrine. You'll notice that we haven't even gotten to the confession yet. And one, uh, one reason for that is because the confession is just trying to explain what we're trying to explain here. We see this in Scripture. This is just uh, the Bible's teaching on the nature of God Himself. Psalm 139, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Right? You see this this reference uh, going on here to the fact that the spirit, where shall I go from your spirit? There is nowhere I can go from your spirit. There is nowhere I can go from you. Right? So we're seeing that there are divine attributes being attributed to the spirit. There's an equation here that the spirit is God. Okay? And again, we can multiply these references, um, but for the sake of brevity, we'll, we'll stop right there. Okay. So... Does anyone have a question about this little rendition here, this representation of the basic outlines or guidelines of the understanding of the Trinity? You all got it. Got it down pat. Excellent. Well, well let's move on. So here, yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. Uh, one. Yeah. The, the, the Old Testament did they really truly understand? I know they talk about the Spirit. Yeah. You know, well, even the Spirit hovering over the waters during creation. So you've got you've got this the Spirit uh, present throughout the Old Testament. But is there a great deal of understanding? I, I wouldn't say there is. Though we just read from Psalm one thirty nine. Where shall I go from your spirit? So the teaching is there. Is it developed and is it clarified? No, it's not as clear as it's going to be in the New Testament. Um, particularly as we uh, look later on, we're going to see in our, in our uh, concluding um, section that it makes sense that it wouldn't be until the New Testament that there's a greater understanding. There's, a, there's expectation of the, a greater pouring out of the spirit, you know, Joel chapter 2 Uh, connected with the new covenant. And we certainly saw that in Acts chapter two, where that's what's happening is what Joel said was going to happen and those sorts of things. Um, And so there was less known, there was less clarity about the Holy Spirit uh, for certain. Less than us. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Just because the because the, uh, the, well, the Bible hadn't been completed yet for one thing, but yeah, they would have understood that God works by means of his Holy Spirit, et cetera. They would have had some some reference, some understanding. Yeah, so there, David in uh, Psalm 51, right? Psalm 51, uh, David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. There's a couple of ways uh, to to think about that, that um, he's probably referencing his anointing as king, Right? And so the anointing, the oil on the head, and that anointing is representative of God's anointing by his spirit of a person. So the oil didn't do anything. There's nothing magical or anything like that, but represented and pictured uh, the, the Holy Spirit anointing someone for that task. And certainly for the task of king, uh, he, he had that anointing. And, and we knew that certainly with David. And so he might have been praying in that regard that, that I know that my actions mean I probably should be killed. Uh, you know I, I should be like Saul before him who was you know kind of uh, taken off the scene um, let not your holy spirit so it wasn't a belief that he was question i'm not sure i can answer that briefly uh, or or definitively certainly the holy spirit um, worked in prophet priest and king in the old testament we we certainly see that how how um, how clearly, uh, how clearly he, he would have understood or how clear the, the Old Testament taught on that. There, there, is, there is a greater... Um, the, the, the presence of the working of the Spirit in the Old Testament is much greater than we might think. We read through it and we don't see um, the same kind of discussion of, for example, the Holy Spirit giving life to the unbeliever, you know, to creating you know, regeneration and things like that, though certainly people were regenerated. Um, and so there's a lot of it that now, with the with understanding the New Testament, we look back and see, oh, the Holy Spirit was at work in all manner of ways, just not like during the new the New Covenant period, which is a which is a uh, a whole new ballgame. Not whole new, but like there's a greater degree, there's a greater um, evidence uh, and and pouring out of power by the Spirit of God upon the people of God. than was evidenced in the Old Testament. Okay. All right, so we look at, um, I have here an excerpt from the Nicene Creed, and it's actually a couple different excerpts, so it doesn't read exactly like this, but um, that talk, uh, speak on this topic. Now, this is from the 4th century, okay? And so we're going way back, or to look at it the other way. This is early on in Christian history. And so the the discussion that we have had uh, in our day and age with our language and all the, that, that was a discussion that they were having in the early centuries of the church, trying to understand how these things could be. Trying to understand where the boundaries were. Because there were people who had all kinds of uh, heretical teachings and beliefs and, and whatnot, and, and uh, that, no, Jesus is not actually God. Not, not in the same way the Father is God, uh, clearly. Like, you know what I mean? There was, just, there was a lot of misunderstanding and false teaching, a lot of heresy on the topic. And so, uh, here in the Nicene Creed, In the 4th century, we have a discussion of this very topic. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. You hear they're, they're working through the various aspects and, and they're clarifying exactly what we mean when we talk about the Son. So the statement on the Father is pretty clear, pretty simple. Uh, it's not, not super involved. But then once you get to talking about the Son, they go to great lengths to explain what they mean by saying that the Son is God, right? Right? And likewise, in the third portion there, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He also is God. He has unique uh, roles, unique functions. He does unique things. But He, alongside Father and Son, is worshiped and glorified that is to say he is rightly worshiped as God because he is God all right so these these are early Christians in the fourth century already working through the boundaries so this is this is essential Christian doctrine and it's old Christian doctrine in one sense it's basic we saw in our catechism for boys and girls. It was questions 6, 7, and 8, not 600. Right? So it's, it's, yes, are we going to wrap our mind entirely around this? No. But we do need to know where the boundaries are. Okay? And so uh, the Nicene Creed laid out those boundaries and those boundaries still hold. Those are, um, uh, we, we, would, we would agree with this entirely. Okay? And so having said all of that, that's a 37-minute introduction. To uh, our paragraph in the Confession, chapter 2 and paragraph 3, we read these words. Now you, you may want to have your pen, your pencil, and underline some things, and, and we not, and we're going to talk through this, and you'll see that there's nothing new in here except perhaps vocabulary. In this dif- divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, that's a vocab word, we'll get to that. The Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? All right, now that is a uh, rough piece of writing to try and work your way through quickly, okay? But you can see that the things we've already talked about are the topics of discussion in this paragraph. That They're trying to hammer out, they're trying to lay out Basic truths about God How to understand that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet the Father is not the Son is not the spirit is not the Father.' I'm trying to understand the basics of this, okay and so we get into some technical language here. Normally, how do we think about um, we say that there is one God in? three persons. So we have the category of person, right? Category of personhood. And what's the other category? So we say, how many, how many persons are there? And how many persons does this one God exist? Three, right? So as, in regard to this category of personhood, We're talking about three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's the other category? Essence, Essence, right? Being. When we discuss the category of essence, how many are we talking about? One. Now, you see how important it is for us to keep in mind the categories we're talking about. When When you're sharing the gospel with Uh, someone who's not a Christian, perhaps particularly if they have an LDS background or something similar, what they hear you saying is, uh, well, I, I won't. What they hear you saying is that God is one, God is three, God is one, God is three, and they're thinking in the same category. What they're usually thinking is, you are saying that uh, uh, God is one in essence. At the same time, you're saying God is three in essence. Which is absurd. That's absurd. You can't say that something is one and in the same way, that same thing is three. In the same category, you can't say that it's one and it's three. That's absurd. Okay? Okay? That's logically inconsistent, that is absurd. That's the way they hear you saying God is three in one. That, that we are talking about, yeah, God is, God is uh, there's only one God. Oh yeah, but you say the Son is God. Yeah, He's God. But you say the Holy Spirit is God. Yeah, He's God. So you just said there are two gods. And then when you get to uh, the, the Father, same thing, right? So you see the confusion become, uh, comes in because we lack the proper categories. When we're talking about the category of essence or being. There's only one. There is only one God. When you talk about the category of personhood. Or. As is used in our. The confession here in paragraph three. I hope I can spell this right. Subsistences. If I write it small enough, you won't be able to tell if I misspelled it. <laughs> tricks. See, I have tricks. Category of personhood or subsistences. We're talking about three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's just vital for us to keep in mind what the, the category distinctions. Okay? Um, I hesitate to use an example here because you sh- you're going to get yourself in trouble when you give examples for the Trinity. Uh, when you give illustrations. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to refrain from doing that but we ask the question why did the framers of the the confession choose the word subsistences here and not person or personhood right that's the question well here, here's the reason usually we use we use the reference to a person we say it, uh, one god in three persons right we do that a lot we talk about three persons and that's fine that's fine but in, in their desire to be very specific and clear, the framers of the confession understood that this term, the Latin word, word behind person, can also mean something like a mask, which, which might leave open the possibility that they're saying um, God sometimes appears with the mask of the sun, and other times he appears with the mask of the Spirit, right? Which is a heresy called modalism, right? God appearing in different ways. And so they, they knew that most people, most people understand, and we use personhood, we, we don't mean a different mask. But they said there, there is, uh, philosophically and particularly in the theological discussions going on in their day, there was a need to be even more specific. And so they talked about three subsistences, right? And so I have a a quote there from Sproul. I looked up a ton of definitions of subsistences, and most of them were more confusing than the word subsistences. So I just, uh, this, uh, Sproul has a quote um, in his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. He says, a subsistence in the Godhead is a real difference, but not an essential difference in the sense of different in being, right? Right? So, uh, I said this category is essence, or it could be the category of being, right? So what he's saying is, by using the term subsistences, we can talk about distinctions being made in this category that are real distinctions, it's a real difference, but does not imply essential differences, doesn't imply differences in this category of being or essence. Okay? I think that's, that's enough of that. That's, that's why they use the word subsistences. We use the word person usually, and, and that's fine. You're not going to run up to someone who say, well, did you know the Latin word person? Really can mean that like, you're not going to have that problem. But in the, in the context in which they were writing this, there were those who were very suspicious of Baptists, and they were thinking, uh, Baptists have goofy doctrine. They don't even baptize their kids. And these other goofy things that they believed, and so they they were trying to they they were giving extra super scrutiny to Baptist doctrine, and so those putting together the confession said, "All right, let's lay it out as clearly as we possibly can, so that we cannot be misunderstood." And so, rather than using person, they use the word subsistences here, okay, to show that distinction that we're talking about in this category here, real distinction. Real difference in regard to the father being different than the son, but not essential differences, not differences in the category of essence. All right? So that's a vocabulary word um, that you might want to keep there. It involves a real difference, but not an essential difference, not a difference in regard to the category of essence. All right, enough of that. Three subsistences, but one essence. Three subsistences, but one essence. There are three subsistences, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet that essence remains undivided. That's an attempt to put into words what's indicated here that the The Father is God, entirely, all of God. And the Son is God, entirely, all of God. Not divided, the Son is one piece of the pie. If this is a visual representation of the totality of the essence of God, and we have something like that where you have the Father and you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit, each gets a piece of the pie. Each is 33% of the Godhead, or something like that. No. They're saying, no, that there is, uh, that distinction is not there. Each having the whole divine essence, and yet that essence remains undivided. There There is no division in the essence of God. There is just the essence of God. Right? One essence, undivided, And each one is of that essence entirely. Have I blown your brain yet? Yes. And mine's gone too, right? I'm just saying words that I know are are biblical because we've established the boundaries. We've established what the boundaries are and we're seeking to uh, understand and explain more clearly those boundaries and what they mean. Okay? But it's very important for us when we're talking about uh, the Trinity, that we understand the difference between these categories. Because when we are sharing the gospel with uh, an unbeliever, and you say God is three in one, they're going to rightly say you're crazy. Unless you're able to explain, no, in, in essence, in being. Now, they're still not going to get it. But at least, at least you can communicate clearly. We are talking about different categories in regard to the category of personhood or subsistences, which I don't recommend you use that term in evangelism. But if you're talking about that category, you're going to say God is three. There are three persons. But in the category of essence, being, there is only one God. We don't, we're not polytheists. We are monotheists. We are Trinitarian. Okay? Next, three infinite subsistences, one God. All three, so again, trying to lay this out, these things that, that, uh, so that we can be clear about what we don't mean, even if we don't understand uh, and have our minds wrapped all the way around all that is involved in the Trinity, which we don't, we, we can explain what we don't mean. All three subsistences are infinite and without beginning, therefore they are but one God. Again, a statement about there being only one being, one essence, one God. Three are not divided, but distinguished. Right? So, not divided, but distinguished. You can distinguish between the two, but you cannot divide them. You can distinguish between the three, but you cannot divide them. The three are not to be divided in regard to their nature and being, but to be distinguished by various unique relative properties and personal relations. We are not dividing God up into three. We are recognizing uh, differences, unique differences in the relationship amongst the three subsistences, amongst the three persons of the Trinity. And here's, here's what I mean. As to the Father, as to the Father's eternal relations, He is of none. He's not begotten. Do we talk about the Son being begotten? Yeah. Well, what about the Spirit? We talk about the Spirit proceeding from. But the Father is of none. He is neither begotten nor proceeding. As to His nature and being, He is underived and self-existent. So when we're talking about the relationship between the three, we're, we're saying... The Father is of none. The Father is not begotten. There is no begotten Father. There is no proceeding Father. There is the begotten Son. There is the proceeding Holy Spirit. The Father is to be distinguished in relationship to those. Okay? The Father begets the Son. The Father sends the Spirit so that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but the Father himself is not begotten, is not, uh, does not proceed, right? So that's that's as to the Father. So you can see that those are unique aspects to the Father. Particularly we see that when we contrast with the Son, as to the Son's eternal personal relations, he is eternally begotten of the Father. And as to his nature and being, he is underived and self-existent because he is God. But in his personhood and his relationship to the father he is eternally begotten of the father now that term begotten uh, can can cause us problems sometimes because it makes us think of a beginning that there was a time when he was not and then he was begotten and then there was a time that he was like our children but that's not implied in the word begotten it simply is defining the relationship between father and son it has nothing to do with there being a beginning sometimes it just has to do with the relation, uh, relationship of the father and the son, that the father begets the son. The son in his relationship is begotten by the father, okay? And there are, there are illustrations uh, of this, but I'll, I'll try to hold off on those too because I don't want to get myself in trouble, okay? Anytime we try and use, you know, oh, the Trinity's like an egg, right? And we pull out the egg and there's a the shell and there's the yolk and there's, we get ourselves in trouble every time. That's partialism, right? Because the, the shell is not the entire egg. The white is not the entire egg and the yolk is not the entire egg, right? So when we divide them that way, we lose this truth, <laughs> right? Or when you talk about steam, water, it's it's steam and then it's water and then it's ice. No, we're talking about, that's modalism. That's this H2O appearing in this form and then appearing in this form and then appearing in this form, right? Th- those are all heresies. So So we don't, we don't, we, we, we do our, our level best not to give illustrations or pictures of what God is like in His triune nature because there is nothing like Him. We will always run ourselves into trouble. Always run ourselves into trouble. There is, there is no, you know, the, the, the clover leaf. and the, No, no, there is not one, okay? And because there is nothing like God. And so uh, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit, as to the Holy Spirit's eternal personal relations. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. But as regards His nature, His being, His essence, He is underived and self-existent because He's God. Right? So we're trying to maintain uh, that distinction. Okay? And I know, I know there are a lot of questions in regard to that. Right? I know there are a lot of questions because books get written about those questions. <laughs> right? There are questions there. Moving on, God must be triune in order for us to commune with God. I love the, the, the concluding um, sentence there, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him, right? What is meant by that? Well, there is a, uh, another, another catechism that asks, asks this same exact question. It says, what use may we make of the knowledge of the three persons of the Trinity? That's the question. So again, you're going to teach this to your six-year-old, okay? What use may we make of the knowledge of the three persons of the Trinity? Here's the first part of the answer. Here is use of consolation and salvation. The Father is not known without the Son. Can you know the Father without the Son? Not according to 1 John. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. So you can't even know the Father without the Son. There are uh, lots of discussions about, um, you know, belief in God uh, apart from Jesus and all that kind of stuff. No one has the Father who does not have the Son. 1 John 2 and verse 23 No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. And so, without the Son, we do not know the Father. And so, uh, we can see how important it is for us to know the Son clearly, because without that, we can't know the Father. The second answer to that uh, catechism question was none are saved without faith in Christ. Right? And so 1 John uh, chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we we uh, love the children of God. We know that we love the children of God and we love God and obey his commandments. That first verse there. Right? Believing in Christ is how we are born again. That's how we are uh, united with the Father. It's how we are saved, is by faith in the Son. There is no salvation. This is the third part of the answer. There is no salvation without knowledge of the Spirit. Without the knowledge of the Spirit. A couple of verses. Romans chapter eight, and verse nine. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have life. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The work of Christ is communicated to us by the Spirit. It is applied to us by the Spirit. We are connected to Christ by faith, by means of the work of the Holy Spirit. We must have Him. And Paul says this is really the aspect of the essence of the Christian life, chapter uh, 14 and verse 17 of Romans. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These things are communicated to us, these save, the saving work of Christ, knowledge of the Father is communicated to us by the Spirit, right? And so you see the working of Father, Son, and Spirit as essential, as an essential uh, for us to know God, to have peace with God, we must have the Father as the Author of redemption. We must have the Son as the Accomplisher of redemption, and we must have the Spirit as the Applier of redemption. We must have all three in order for us to be rightly related to God. And I think this is this is a part of what Paul is uh, referencing here when, at the uh, c- conclusion of Second Corinthians that great benediction 2 Corinthians 13 and 14 the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all that if our god is not triune we cannot know him but the fact that he is triune means that we can know him that we can have peace with him as As the Father sends the Son, the Father out of His love for us sends the Son to accomplish the work of redemption for us, and the Spirit of God applies that to us so that it becomes ours. We are secured in Christ, and thus we have fellowship with the Father. And so this doctrine of the Trinity is uh, far from being just a a topic for people to write books about, is essential uh, to our relationship with Him, essential to our fellowship with Him. And the more we understand this, the more we think about this, the more we'll we'll recognize it in Scripture, and the more we will see how important it is in our own Christian life. Let me pray for us. Father, we have gone very quickly through very, very deep waters. Uh, There are no deeper waters than your Trinitarian nature, your triune nature. Father, I pray that uh, as we have uh, looked at these things, I pray that that, uh, that would not cause us to think clinically about you and about how you have uh, communicated yourself to us and how you uh, relate Father, Son, and Spirit one to another and how uh, you, our triune God, relate to us, your children, that, that it wouldn't cause clinical thoughts, that it wouldn't cause us to uh, keep you at a distance and, and ponder and, and turn you over like a, like a stone we're examining but instead that it would draw us to worship you that it would draw us in gratitude and great praise and worship to bow down before you rejoicing that you uh, are who you are triune in nature and that you have made yourself known to us and that by the working of your spirit communicating to us, applying to us the redemptive work of Christ. We have been united with you, our Father. And so, Father, as we go to our worship service now, we pray that you indeed would be glorified, that we would enter fully into worship, that even these truths that we've talked about this morning would cause us to to rejoice all the more, that we get to be your children, we get to be at peace with you, that we have eternal life in Christ that we would worship you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.